our Christian faith speaks to us in various ways about the image of God, the Imago Dei. Scripture speaks to us of human beings made in the image and likeness of God, of Christ as the image of the invisible God, and of us being conformed to Christ's image. To ask about the image of God raises questions about ourselves, about what we are in the world, but asking about this image also raises questions about God and about his son, Jesus Christ. Where is the image of God in all of this? The world around us is full of images and replete with likenesses. One thing is like another. Everything is more or less like everything else. Everything is like everything else, certainly in the narrow sense that each thing exists. But the world around us is so full of difference and variety that the world is full of unlikeness as well as likeness. No two things exist in quite the same fashion. Two people can be very alike and yet different in so many ways. Music and art can be so very different all over the world. And yet we can always see likeness, identify similarity, and appreciate interesting points of comparison. Two things can be alike by sharing the same species, being the same kind of thing. And yet there can be many individual differences between two members of the same species. And yet we would not count every likeness, every similitude as an image. St. Thomas Aquinas takes from St. Augustine the example of two eggs. Each egg is like the other. They're pretty much the same. They are at least the same kind of thing. They can look exactly the same. Sure, we might say that each one has a different history. Maybe they come from different hens. Maybe they come from different kinds of birds. Maybe one's a chicken egg and the other is a partridge egg. But they're pretty much the same likenesses of each other. And yet we would not say that one egg is the image of the other, St. Thomas suggests. St. Thomas holds that more of a claim is being made when we say that one thing is not merely like another, but is the image of the other. What is at stake here, he thinks, is that one thing has been copied from another. One thing is an imitation of the other, an imitation in a good sense of the word. We speak of images in art. We could make the statue of someone and say it's their image. We can paint a picture of something and say the painting is an image of its subject. We take photographic images with our cameras and phones. If something is the image of something, it's being copied from it. A coin can bear the image of the king or queen. 
It's the monarch's image, their shape, that is somehow copied from them onto the coin. I'm not sure that every act of copying counts as an image, though. An artist could copy the colours of my habit and incorporate them into a picture of almost anything other than me. But that act of copying wouldn't make the painting an image of me or even of my habit. Not all copying is an image. Something more is required. How often have we heard it said that a child is the image of their parent? He's his father's image, we might say, or something like that. I think we'd find it odd if someone said that a parent was the image of their child. Of course, parents can be like their children, and children can be like their parents. But we would usually say that children are images of their parents. If someone said that a mother was the image of her daughter, we probably think an unusual point was being made. We normally say children are images of their parents, I suppose, because children are somehow nature's copies of their parents. The child is copied from the parent and not the other way around. And so nature is full of images and so is art. Nature makes copies, and so do we. Sometimes people have tried to make an image of God, an image in metal or stone or whatever it might be. Surely, though, the construction of an image of the invisible God must be doomed to failure. It's here that we must turn to what God himself has told us about his image. The first thing I want to look at is the opening of the hymn we find in Colossians 1, where St Paul speaks in praise of God's divine Son, Jesus Christ. The hymn begins with the words, He is the image of the invisible God. And so here we find that there are not only images connected with created natures, but there is also an image to consider when we come to the divine nature. We believe, of course, that the Father is like the Son and the Son is like the Father. As we say in the Creed, the Son is consubstantial with the Father. All three persons of the Trinity share one nature, and so each person is like the others. And yet St Paul does not say that the Father is the image of the Son. He only says that the Son is the image of the Father. The Father is no more image than he is the Son. He is the Father of the Son, and the Son is his image. Clearly, we have here the fact that the Son is eternally begotten by the Father. The Son comes from the Father, and the Father does not derive from the Son. We talk about human children as images of their human parents, and this reflects something of a divine reality, that the Son is the image of the invisible Father. 
as such, he receives the divine nature from the Father. So like the Father, he is invisible because he is just as much God as the Father is, just as invisible as the Father is. The Son is equal to the Father. St. Thomas thinks of God the Son as the most perfect image of the Father. Since he is the divine Son, he can hardly do an imperfect job of imaging the Father. Rather, he images the Father to perfection, supreme perfection, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Going back to the beginning of scripture, to Genesis 1, we find that humanity is spoken of as created in the image and likeness of God. Each human being is created in God's image. This is not something that stops with the first human beings either, even after they have sinned. When we get to Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, we find that human beings, even after six chapters of primeval sinning, or not, are referred to as being made in God's image. Being in God's image is something that counts for all human beings, though perhaps not all in quite the same way. Of course, no mere human being can image God as God the Son images the Father in eternity. For one thing, none of them is divine by nature. None of them could be God's perfect image as the divine Son is. So what does the creation of human beings in God's image amount to? There is some debate about this today, and various ideas circulate in Christian theology. I'll just mention some which seem to me to be not so satisfactory. One idea I've come across, which stems from the biblical idea of covenant, is this. As you know, in the Bible story, God makes a covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and fulfills them all through a new covenant in Christ. These theologians speculate that another covenant was made with Adam and Eve at creation, and this covenant put them into God's image. So the image of God amounts to the first humans being the recipients of a covenant in which God had, had them, gave them dominion regarding the rest of his creation, something that gets mentioned in Genesis, this dominion, just after their creation. However, it seems to me that the point of any covenant is that God could have made that covenant with someone else. When he makes a covenant with Israel, he could have done so with Egypt or the Philistines if he'd wanted. There's nothing to say that God had to make the covenant with Israel and no one else. And yet God made this choice. But can it be the same with human beings at the creation? Could God equally have made the covenant with cows or with squirrels? Confirming, conferring the image of God on cows or squirrels and giving cows or squirrels 
the covenant duty of governing the rest of creation, but he just happened to settle on human beings. Strikes me as odd that God could have made such a covenant with any other animal. And so I think it wrong to think of the image in terms of a covenant. Instead, we should think that there was already something about the human being as God created them, something that put them in his image. And that made it fitting for God to bestow on them a certain role, and indeed various covenants. It's nothing other than the function God gives human beings of governing his creation. It's not a question of what we are, but more a question of what we do, our function. By caring for God's creation, human beings do the work of imaging God in the world. On this view, the image just is the special function that humans play in God's wider creation, and not anything more basic than function. Again, I have a problem with this, because it fails to ask what it is about human beings that makes them capable of having a function that no other animal has or can have. What is it about human beings, about their very constitution or makeup, their nature, that makes them capable of governing God's creation? It's in this capability that Catholic theology traditionally looks for God's image. If we can find something unique in the makeup of the human animal that makes them uniquely capable of governing God's creation, eventually we will be on to discovering it's God in what God's image consists here. So at this point, I should say something very brief about the makeup of the human being. And I only want to make one point, and that is that while a human being is a single being, a single reality, a human being is made up of a body and an intellectual soul, a material body and an immaterial soul that continues to exist after death. I think it's important to say this because it's become fashionable among some theologians to think that an immaterial soul is not really a Christian idea, but it just comes from philosophy. It's true that Greek philosophers like Plato did speculate about an immaterial soul. And it's true in the later books of the Old Testament, there's a clearer distinction between soul and body. And spirit. Ecclesiastes speaks of the dust returning to earth and the spirit returns to God who gave it. The Book of Wisdom comes nearest to Greek philosophical ideas and embraces the distinction between soul and body. The souls of the righteous are in the hands of God, and so on. Later Jewish texts also have a definite belief in the immortality of the soul. Jesus himself accepted the distinction between body and soul when he warned people not to fear those who could kill the body only and not the soul. 
but to fear the one who could kill both body and soul. This also makes sense of other texts in the New Testament, such as Jesus's promise to the good thief that that very day they would be together in paradise. And the need to distinguish the risen Jesus with flesh and bones from a mere spirit. So the church has always taught that a human being is a unity of body and soul. And so we can ask whether we should look for the divine image in the body, in the soul, or in both. Now, I'm not suggesting that only some part of the human being is in the image of God. It seems to me that Genesis 1 has the whole human being created in the image of God. There's no reason to think that only one part of the human being is going to be in God's image. However, it is legitimate to ask what it is about human beings that puts the whole of them in God's image. I sometimes say that I'm right-handed. What is it that makes me right-handed is one part of me, my right hand. This doesn't mean it's only my right hand that's right-handed. It's I, I am right-handed, but by way of part of me, that is my right hand. Likewise, the whole of me is in the image of God, but that could be by way of a part of me. One view in the early centuries of the church was that my body put me in the image of God, because I suppose God would have a body shaped just like ours. Many of the church fathers found themselves having to attack the view that God, as such, had a physical body of any shape. St. Thomas thinks that if having a body put something in the image of the incorporeal God, everything bodily or physical could have a claim on being in God's image, which is not what we find in Genesis 1. So it seems more likely to suppose that it's what is unique to humans among material creatures, that that's what puts them in the image of God. And this is the immaterial soul that survives death. St. Thomas thinks that it is the special immaterial character of this soul that gives us the higher capacity for intellectual knowledge abstracted from material conditions. And the love that goes with that knowledge, it's that that makes human beings distinctive in the material creation. And it's not difficult to see that it's this higher intellectual capacity and the freedom that goes with it that enables us to have a share in the governing of and the caring for the wider material creation. So if we want to look for what puts us in the image of God, we're better off looking for it in our intellectual souls. 
Now remember that we're not looking for a perfect image here, but one that's imperfect. For St. Thomas, what we're looking for is not something so much like the human son of a human father sharing the same nature, say the son of a king. We're looking for something more like the king's image found not in his son, but in a coin. The coin is not human, as the king is and the son are, but the coin does have copied into it the shape of the king, the shape of the human species. This provides an analogy for how we are in the image of God, but bearing this image imperfectly. Christ is the perfect image of God in all eternity, true God from true God. We, however, are not true God, but like copper coins bearing the image of a king, we somehow image the divine in an imperfect way that has something to do with what distinguishes us from the rest of the material creation. What distinguishes us from the rest of the material creation is not the divine nature itself, but something copied from it. St. Thomas thinks that Although there can be no nature or species in common between God and humans, there is a likeness of human beings to God that has something to do with species. And this is what makes one a copy of the other. St. Thomas thinks that our capacity to know and love in a higher way than our fellow material creatures that is copied into us to make us imitate a God who knows and loves, a Trinitarian God at whose heart is knowing and loving. So while human beings as such do not have divinity as their nature, they do have copied from God's nature, this quality of knowing and loving and our intellectual nature is best able to imitate the God who knows and loves by human intellectual acts of knowing and of loving. St. Thomas held that the two processions in the Trinitarian God, the procession of the Son from the Father and the procession of the Holy Spirit, have something to do with the knowing and the loving that there is in God. He links knowledge to the procession of the Son. After all, the Son is called the wisdom or word of God in Scripture. St. John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We express our knowledge in words, and St. Thomas thinks of God the Father expressing the divine knowledge in the speaking of his word, the eternal begetting of God the Son. Love too is linked to the Holy Spirit. St. Paul speaks of how the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. 
St. Thomas thinks of the procession of the Holy Spirit as a bursting forth of love in God. So when we act by knowing and loving, or at least when knowing and loving God, or in our capacity to know and love God, we are imaging God, the Holy Trinity. For St. Thomas, it is primarily when acting in this way that we image the Holy Trinity. Although he allows that we image God also by way of the underlying powers for acting in knowledge and love. So even when we're not actually making intellectual acts, say when we're asleep, we haven't stopped being in the image of God. I think all this is important to realize because sometimes people shy away from seeing the intellectual soul as putting us in the image of God. Sometimes the reason is that they think that it means that people with mental disability won't be in the image of God, and that of course can't be right. On St. Thomas's account, where there is a, a close interrelation between the intellectual soul and the bodily, anything that prevents us acting intellectually is to be traced to the body, say the physical brain, rather than to the immaterial soul. This means that, say, if the body gets tired, the intellectual soul doesn't do its work quite so well, because the soul always works together in this life. So if there is any disability, it's something rooted in the body rather than in the intellectual soul. This means that seeing ourselves as in the image of God through the intellectual soul rather than through the body actually protects the fact that people with disabilities are in the image of God rather than undermining it. Even if there is a disability in your body, the intellectual soul will always put you in the image of God. Now, I've said that the body is not what puts us in the image of God. The immaterial, immortal soul is. But because the body and soul are so closely united in a human being, this union puts the body into God's image too. The body doesn't put us into the image of God, but the body gets put into the image of God through its union with the soul. St. Thomas thinks of ways that the human body, united to the soul, can image God then in ways incorporeal angels can't. Unlike immaterial angels, human beings physically reproduce the species, have children, and so imitate the procession of one person from another that takes place in God. Although such reproduction happens in other animals, St. Thomas sees reproduction as having a higher significance in humans. Likenesses such as reproduction may be counted as belonging to the character of the divine image in us. St. Thomas also mentions the fact 
that the spiritual soul is present throughout the material body. He sees this as an imitation of the fact that God is present throughout the whole universe. This is something that cannot happen in an angel because an angel doesn't have a body. So the union of our bodies with our souls give our bodies ways of sharing in the soul's capacity for imaging God. Once we take that into account, we can see that our imaging of God is more extensive than that of any angel. But what about the fact that Genesis says that we are created in the image and likeness of God? Something that I suppose can count for angels too. St. Thomas thinks that we can take this image and likeness in two basic ways. While not every likeness is an image, as we've seen, every image is a likeness. Perhaps in the words image and likeness, we have a poetic way of saying fundamentally the same thing. We are in the image of God, which gives us a certain likeness to God. And St. Thomas agrees with this. If something is an image of something else, it can't not be like it. Every image has to be a likeness. But St. Thomas also knows that, while some fathers of the church thought image and likeness were identical, others thought that image and likeness were different from each other. In fact, some thought that, while the image of God belongs to our basic humanity, such that it can never be lost, likeness is something else something that can be lost. Some people might then be in the image of God, but without this likeness, while others would have both image and likeness. Theologians still debate today which approach is right, and St Thomas seems happy to say that both are right. Whereas we often think that scripture can only mean one thing in a place, and we worry about which candidate for meaning is the right one. St. Thomas was more open to see the possibility of layers of meaning, different meanings in any one text, the truths of which are all ultimately compatible. So we can be happy too, to acknowledge both readings of likeness. It can indicate for us the fact that the image is a likeness and the idea of likeness adding something to the idea of image. This helps us to bring out something else that St. Thomas thinks, namely that the image of God in us is not something purely static, and exactly the same in everyone. Rather, it is something more dynamic, something that can be developed within us as we become more like God. St. Thomas comments on how we ordinarily say 
that some images are better than others. For example, one picture of someone can be better a better likeness than another picture of them. St Thomas comments how we say that a picture is a very good likeness of someone and another maybe not so good a likeness. One image then can be better than another because it is a better likeness of the original subject than the other is. And it's the same with being in the image of God. St. Thomas certainly thinks that all human beings are in the image of God. This is not because we all know and love God, but because we all have the capacity to be raised up to knowledge and love of God by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Humanity's higher capacity for knowing and loving, higher than any other animal, makes us fit subjects for God's offer of himself as one we can know and love. To that extent, because we have this capacity, not a capacity we can activate for ourselves, but one that God realizes in us by his grace. Because we have certain potential for knowing and loving God. We are all in the image of God, every member of the human race. But this likeness becomes more powerful when the Spirit gives us gifts of knowledge and love, faith, charity, wisdom, so that we can know and love God as believers. By receiving these gifts from God, our intellectual souls are raised up to a new level beyond the power of our nature to receive a supernatural life, a participation in God's own life of knowledge and love. These gifts equip our intellects and wills for actually knowing and loving God beyond the power of our limited human nature. With these gifts of knowledge and love infused by the Holy Spirit into our souls, we can actually know and love God through grace, and the image of God within us is taken to a new level. It's now not just a case of having a potency that God can actualize. We're given stable habitual gifts for making acts of knowing and loving God. This is the life of grace, a sharing in the life. But this life of grace we experience already is not the most perfect way in which we can image God. It's only the beginning and the beginning of a, of a journey to our destination in the next life. The life of grace comes to its fulfillment in heaven, where, as St. John says, we shall see God just as he is. This is the life of glory, where the invisible God makes himself known to us by giving himself to us in a new way, giving to us as our means of knowledge the same means by which he knows himself, that is, the very being of God. 
the being of God will flood our minds with divine light, a new way of knowing, divine light in which we shall finally see the light of God. It is in heaven that we shall image God even more perfectly than we do now, because we shall know and love God in the way that God knows and loves himself, that is, through himself. Here on earth, we have begun the journey to this goal in faith, walking by faith and not by sight. But when we have arrived in heaven, we shall image God yet more powerfully than we do now. The acts of knowing and loving God in heaven are acts of knowing God so fully and so loving him so powerfully that they just do not cease. We shall image God more perfectly by knowing and loving him without end, just as the Holy Trinity knows and loves without end. This is eternal life, Jesus says, to know God and the one he has sent, the one he has sent to bring us to the Father. How then is it made possible for us actually to image God, whether on earth or in heaven? St Thomas teaches that through the incarnation of the perfect image of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, heaven is effectively brought to earth so that we on earth can be transported to heaven. When the image of the invisible God assumes human nature, he assumes not only a human body, but also a human mind or intellectual soul, a complete human nature. St. Thomas thinks of Christ's human mind as elevated by grace and glory to a preeminent imaging of God. Christ's human mind, as blessed with a knowledge of the invisible God so powerful that an, an immense love springs forth in his human will, drawing him to reconcile us to God as members of one body, the church. We are given the opportunity to believe what he teaches, and he teaches us what he knows. St John says that it is from Christ that we receive grace upon grace. Grace and truth came to us through Jesus Christ. That we can actually image God here on earth and that we shall image him more perfectly in heaven comes to us as a gift, a gift that comes through Jesus Christ when the perfect image of God takes to himself a human nature made in the image and likeness of God and blesses it with the gifts of the Holy Spirit to perfection. And so Christ's humanity has that fullness from which each of us can receive. And we are conformed to Christ by bearing his image. By bearing Christ's image then, we are more fully in God's image. We can actually image God because the divine image images God so perfectly in his humanity 
sharing not only in our human nature, but also sharing his gifts of grace with us. And so we can have a share in his imaging of God. Wow, thank you, Father. We've actually got quite a few questions. Mm -hmm. um, so the first one comes from Tony in London. Mm -hmm. Tony, you can ask your question now. Thank you for posing the question um, because I think you've actually touched on some of the points uh, later on. But I, I ask you, uh, does the fall uh, alter the physical and immaterial nature of the body and soul of human beings? And then perhaps supplemental to that is in uh, the imitation of Christ, um, do we... Um, take on uh, do we become more like christ in imitation by virtue by, by, by following the virtues as opposed to the vices and i kind of give the i hope it's not a facetious uh, example uh, oscar wilde's a portrait of dorian gray you the, the mirror uh, the, the the painting in in the ceiling that the, the worse you get the the, the the more you um come away from 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 the beauty if you like. So the, the, the closer, the more virtuous you are, the more the closer you become to the image of Christ. Thank you. Yeah, on, on the second part, certainly, I think what you've said is quite true, that it's through uh, receiving gifts and acting on those gifts by grace that we become more conformed to Christ. And in that way, we image God more powerfully uh, that the fall makes to the human being, whether it makes a difference in our bodies and whether it makes a difference in our souls. Certainly, St. Thomas thinks that we, uh, we fell for the worse in both body and in soul. And this is also the teaching of, of the Catholic Church. So thinking about how it made a difference in souls, St. Thomas holds that the first human beings before the fall were in a state of original righteousness. It is a state of grace, a state in which the Holy Spirit dwelt within them, and the first human beings were thus able to image God in a powerful way as we are now. That state of friendship with God that this, that this faith and charity bring that state of friendship is lost by the fall. So that in some sense, there's a kind of a death for the soul, that it loses not its natural life, but the supernatural life that is had from God, uh, a life that isn't something that human nature generates, but comes from above human nature. And that is what is lost by the fall. So certainly the soul is worse off after the fall than it was before. And the same is the case with the body. While St. Thomas thinks that our bodies being material are mortal by nature, they would by nature eventually corrupt. He doesn't think that human nature explains everything about human beings before the fall, just as it doesn't explain everything now, and especially not in heaven when we come to the resurrection where we will never die again. He thinks that as far as our nature is concerned, our nature is mortal, but God can bless that nature with something that comes from above the power of our nature. 
And so he thinks that prior to the fall, the first human beings were not simply living in a state that was natural, but one that was somehow beyond nature too. And he thinks that they enjoyed a gift of immortality, that their bodies were preserved in some way from the mortality that is natural to them. But this special gift was lost at the fall. So after the fall, the human body was subject to its own nature, subject to the fact that it would die. So the body was worse off as well as the soul after the fall, because while the soul loses the grace of the Holy Spirit, the body loses the gift of immortality. Okay, we have a question from Jose from Chile. Uh, he asks, um, in what ways does the redemption in Christ restore the image of God in humanity? The redemption restores us because it, uh, while our sin is forgiven, we are also taken not only away from sin, but also towards God. So this redemption restores to us something of what was lost by the fall. I talked before about the immortality that was lost that will be restored in heaven at the end of time. But for now, it's not so much our bodies that are raised up as our souls are raised up, a kind of resurrection for our souls. So our souls are once again blessed with a kind of friendship with God. We have uh, the gift of grace, the gift of charity, the gift of faith and the gift of hope in the resurrection to come. So it's in all these kinds of ways, through various gifts that come from God, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, in these ways we're raised up so that now we're able to know and love God in a way that we weren't able to once we had fallen. But that kind of friendship with God, the gifts of grace, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, these are all restored to us through Christ. He's, if you like, he's, he's through his death, uh, through giving himself, through giving his own life and its infinite value, all these things can now be restored to us, to our souls in this life and more to our bodies in the next. Thank you, Father. Our next question is from Ireland. Uh, Oshin, you can ask your question now. Hello, Father. Uh, thanks for the talk and uh, for the great insights you've just given us. So Thank you. My question, you've sort of touched on it already a bit um, with the first question, but it's, I, want, I would like for you to expand a bit more specifically on the image of God um, and the difference and the, the distinguishing difference between how the image was present prior to fall and then how that likeness or that image uh, was transformed or changed the fall okay so for example uh, the first human beings before the fall have gifts such as faith and charity now faith um, would elevate the intellect so that the first human beings were able to make acts of knowing God and charity elevates the will so that these human beings were able to love God, actually to do so. So if the basic image of God 
gives us the potency for knowing and loving God by grace. In the state of original righteousness, this potency was actualized, it was realized, because the first human beings were able to have faith in God and were able to love God, but actually to do so. It, these gifts are what are lost by the fall, lost from the soul, so that human beings retain their basic nature, the basic human package. So they still have minds, they still have hearts, they still have intellect, they still have will. But these capacities are no longer elevated by the gifts such as faith and charity so that God can really be known in this way that goes above the power of our nature. It is those gifts that are lost. And so human beings were no longer able to make those kinds of acts. This doesn't mean that this went on for a very long time. I'm not talking about thousands of years or anything like that. If we read the biblical narrative, we can see that God's care for human beings comes in immediately as soon as the fall has taken place. So the whole story of the restoration of these gifts that reaches its culmination in Christ, that whole history of salvation and redemption begins almost immediately. But that's the exact uh, difference, I suppose, that I want to say, that, that human beings would still have that basic potency for knowing and loving God, but the potency is no longer realized because the gifts that realize that potential are lost by the fall. Okay. Uh, Father, we have a question from Rome. Uh -huh. How does the Thomistic approach take up and critique the Augustan and Bonaventurian idea of the image as being the Trinitarian echo of memory, intellect, and will, all consubstantial? and inexistent in the soul. I think that the way that St. Thomas looks at this is by thinking about a way in which human beings imitate God in a twofold way by imitating the two processions that are in God. That remembering doesn't actually show a totally independent capacity in the human being that is totally different from our understanding. It's in fact when we remember things, these are intellectual acts that indicate our capacity for, for understanding, for knowledge. So remembering is an act of knowledge. So I suppose in reducing that to to, to, to knowing and willing, he then wants to connect that to what there is two of in God, and that is the begetting of the Son and the procession of the Holy Spirit. So I suppose he's standing in the tradition of St. Augustine, but he's trying to change that to modify it in a certain way because of the way, I suppose, that he thinks that remembering is an act of intellect. 